Randy Hetrick is one of the most influential figures in fitness and is the creator and founder of TRX. In this episode, Randy shares some of his key insights and learnings as we delve into the details of his startup journey with TRX and talk about some of the major challenges that he faced along the way. You know, we had some really good fortune to have been on the front of the, the bow wave of the last big, you know, new evolution in fitness, which was functional training. We're in another one of those places now, I believe. You know, we, we've all just been locked in for five months, right, with, with the, the pandemic. And it has come through the industry like a wrecking ball. Uh, companies that you know probably shouldn't have been in business, they're toast. Um, that's not a bad thing. But the ones that there are a lot of companies that were good companies that are also on the verge of extinction, and that is a bad thing, right? And and so what those guys and gals need to do is realize, hey, we're in a we're in one of those moments of a shift, right? A fundamental shift, and this shift is. Uh, going to change fitness i believe it's not that it's not that brick and mortar uh, facilities won't exist i think they will but it's going to be hard i'm fraser quelch and this is a trx procast where we chat with the most iconic leaders in fitness to get the inside track on what it takes to thrive and succeed in the ever-changing landscape of business training and life So there I was, you know, in, 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 a, in a little warehouse over in the coast of Malaysia along the Straits of Malacca and, you know, working up for an operation that we didn't know if it was going to go or not go. And I uh, had accidentally packed my jujitsu belt and I'd, you know, people have asked me over the years, like, why the hell did you take your jujitsu belt on and off? And, and the answer is not intentionally. I had reached onto the floor of my cage, which are the big, you know, big 10 by 10 areas where all our gear would be staged. And depending on the op, you'd go and you'd pack your bag out. And so I had packed out my bag and I grabbed my flight suit off the ground and stuffed it into a bag, not realizing that you know, we would also go out to the training room there and roll. And so I had my gi on the ground and I had my belt and I had somehow scooped up the belt with the flight suit stuffed in the bag. So that is the answer to how that thing got there. And then I just ended up, you know, sitting on a cot, staring at this bathroom door, sort of thinking about how the hell do I train the climbing muscles to climb a caving ladder with like 80 or 90 pounds of gear on your back and to climb, you know, upside of a freighter depending on how it's loaded, can either be a, a you know, relatively doable climb or it can be a hell of a climb, right? Where you're, where, and it's not just exactly a relaxing climb. So you wanna get the hell up the ladder where you, are, where you are extremely vulnerable, right? And get over the top as fast as you can with all this gear and you know, the ships sort of rocking and rolling. And so you're highly motivated to stay fit but as you sit in a place and time goes by you know you get less and less fit so i had this idea of like hey how can i use gravity and my body weight to mimic that motion right and as you know phrase the first move ever that i ever tried looked an awful lot like the power pole because i was trying to create this kind of emotion well power pole right you're, you're leaning back against gravity pulling yourself up 
repeat. So that was the first move I ever tried. I tied a knot literally in the end of this. Actually, I think it was the other end because I think I tied it in the end with the label on it. Tied a knot in the end of it, threw that over the, over the door, right? You create a knot, throw it over the door, door shuts, locks, lean back, hang on, and hang on the one. business. And that was I the spark. So before we before we get into that, I've got questions about the the ops. So you're, you're you're rolling up to the back of this ship, right? It's the back of the ship you're trying to climb up with the caving ladder. Yeah, but let's not get too much into the tactics. We'll get buddy. too much into the tactics. No, 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 I'm not talking too. I'm not, I'm not. So you say you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable from from bad guys leaning over the side and shooting at you. I presume. Correct. Yes. And and there's always the issue. I mean, we never talked about this, but I've always thought about it of the propeller. Which, which seems to be probably going around underneath you. Yes. You do not wish to, which is yet another point of motivation. You do not wish to fall off of a ladder alongside a freighter because uh, there's at least an even chance that the suction from the propeller as you, you know, float down the back of a, of a large freighter is going to actually draw you into it. And exactly. so... Yeah, so that's another point of motivation. Uh, so, in addition to, you know, you don't want to be run over by your own boat, and you don't want to... Or land on your own boat. Well, you don't want the boats to disappear into the darkness, because these are not daytime ops, right? And disappear into the darkness and leave you floating amongst the large gray things, you know? So... So you're yeah. motivated. So, so now you're, so you're in the warehouse, you've been there for a little while, which is why you're motivated to start, you know, getting creative with your jujitsu belt. Cause you've been there for longer. You're worried that, you know, you're losing strength and you don't want to keep training and you're probably just bored. But uh, what, what quotient of all of those things we won't, we don't have to get into. So what do the guys say? You know, like that you're over on the door and, and there you are with your jujitsu belt. They must've thought you were like, Losing your yeah, well, the first, the first reaction in any kind of, you know, competitive unit, but certainly a military unit, is to mock and heckle. That is the default position, right? And especially among frogmen. I mean, they're notorious hecklers. And so, yeah, you know, at first it's just, you know, a bunch of guys like slinging uh, in various insults at you from wherever they're sitting, you know. Uh, what are you doing, princess? You know, uh, if, if you want to dance, come over here and, you, you know, ask me properly and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, but then very quickly thereafter, SEALs are pretty innovative cats, especially when it comes to training and and gear tweaking. You know, every frogman I know is a, is a gear freak and spends hours working on his gear. And so, you know, the next, the next instinct is for him to come over and be like, all right, what the hell is that? Get out of the way. Let me see it. You know? And, and that was actually kind of encouraging because guys started coming over to me like, well, wait a minute, could you do this? Could you do this? And so, uh, so that was kind of how it got rolling. So your first test group was, was there. So now you go back, that op goes or doesn't go, whatever you come back to, you come back to the U S or back to your main base. So does it just go, do you untie the knot and continue to use it as a jujitsu belt? Or are you now curious? And, well, and- well, no, what I had figured out when I was there is that, you know, a knot in the end worked. So maybe a knot in the middle would work bilaterally. Right. And, but then I realized like, well, there's not enough, there's not enough distance for my wingspan. Right. Mm -hmm. So then I, then I, I grabbed six feet of, of, of nylon webbing, right. We always travel with these spools of webbing that we bought for, for repairing parachute harnesses, but used for many things. Right. And, um, 
because that's one of the little secrets I learned as a SEAL is that with, you know, 10 feet of nylon webbing, a roll of riggers tape and some 550 cord, you can conquer the world. And so, uh, so I went and, you know, dug out six feet of, uh, of this webbing and put it in the middle, right? And then tied a knot in the end of it. And I actually, you can still see it. I actually used the, the, the hand awl, which was this like heavy repair, uh, you know, an awl that basically you can poke through thick things and it has thick string. So you can, you know, generally it was one of the things we used to repair rubber boats with if you, if you popped up. So I went and stitched this knot together and um, threw it over the door and then stood back and you had something that looked an awful lot like today's TRX, you know, it was minus all the, all the ruffles and flourishes, but, uh, but it did the job and it was adjustable, right? Wherever you grabbed, <laughs> you grabbed short, you grabbed long, fully adjustable. Uh, and, and it didn't have anything on the end. And so one of the things that happened was when I got back from that op, which, which did not end up going, that the, the most productive thing that came out of that deployment was TRX. Um, and, uh, and so when I got back to the command, I went out to the parachute loft, right? And I knew how to sew from, from customizing gear, from customizing your, your load bearing equipment and, right. you know, everything got customized. And I just started messing with it because I was a gear geek. So I wanted, I was kind of onto this idea and I was also a physical training geek. So I, I had this idea that, you know, and then I was, I was super into jujitsu. So I was thinking like, oh, this would be amazing for my grip strength and all of that. And I went out and started playing around, put loops in the end of it, right? Where you could not only hang on to the loops like handles, but more importantly, you could put your feet through. And so, you know, then all of a sudden, wow, wait a minute, if I put my heels in, I can do all this hamstring and glued and low back work. And if I, if I stick my toes in, I can do this whole range of like really aggressive, you know, core training and, you know, big like swinging the pendulums and all that stuff, right? Became possible, which before that you couldn't do in nature. Like there was no tool to do right. that kind of stuff, right? And so that was, that was kind of how it evolved. And I just made it a little better, a little better, but then it froze you know, kind of froze in a, what I have described as a Cro-Magnon state of evolution for, geez, I don't know, five years, you know, before I, before I ever kind of got to the next level where I was thinking about this as a business. So let's talk about that next level. You get, so you've been using them in the seals and I'm sure, you know, you've got uh, your buddy in the parachute loft who's, who's helping you make them. And, and cause the other guys are just after mocking you decide they want to use one, which must've been sweet, sweet vengeance. Um, not mocking me now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and now they're asking for freebies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so now you, you exit from the seals. You decide that you're going to go on to, so, so to, like, tell me about how that journey kind of goes. That was like, that was one of the hardest periods of my life, honestly. I, um, you know, I talk a lot now to people about transitions because I've been through a few of them and that was really one of the most, I mean, it was a really profound transition to go from being a, you know, a, a regular kid, a college athlete to becoming a, a Navy officer and then a commando. That, that was a massive transition, right? And there's tons, tons of, of literature talking about how the military breaks people down to build them back up and, you know, align them around a mission. And that was a massive transition becoming a commando. It was way harder becoming not a commando because, you know, I'd been a Navy SEAL officer for 14 years. Um, I'd been to the top of the mountain, which was to, you know, be a squadron commander at the special missions unit. And, um, and 
I thought at the time that there's a lesson in this, right, about, about the grass and how green it is or isn't on the other side. You know, I, I kind of thought a couple of things. One, it's pretty ironic. The, the world was fairly peaceful in July of 2001, which is when I was changing command. So I was, I was leaving my command at that point. And at that point, that was the end of the line for SEAL officers in terms of being operators. Mm-hmm. You then became a bureaucrat, right? You went into administration and you, you moved up through the Navy bureaucracy. And I never really enjoyed that because I was always kind of a startup guy and a, and a field guy. I just didn't really want to be a, a, a bureaucratic manager, you know? And so that was in my head. Um, you know, my, my little dude who is now 19, uh, you, you know, his mom was pregnant with him and was really kind of done with me being gone nine months a year. And so we, we kind of cut a deal that, that I would apply to business school at Stanford. She had a big promotion um, to San Francisco and, and we just cut a deal that if, if I got into Stanford, I would resign my commission, leave the Navy and go to business school. And if not, then we'd continue on and I'd finish a career, however long that took. I'd probably still be in, right, realistically, because, right. Of, what, because of what came, you know, Correct. two months later. Um, and, uh, but to my, you know, still bewilderment, I, I got accepted to Stanford despite my math skills or lack thereof. And so I kind of had to deliver. So I had left, left service in July, at the end of July, 2001, uh, had a one month old newborn at that point because I'd, I'd already been on terminal leave, right? Uh, and had to come back to check out of the command officially. And, and during that time frame, Harry was born and, um, you know, started business school, still not thinking about this. You know, this was not yet a, a glimmer in my eye. I was just kind of training on my straps, thought they were cool. Guys in the team thought they were cool. And that was kind of good enough. Okay, so now you're you're out. You're you're much to your bewilderment. Are accepted to Stanford. You go to Stanford. Nine Eleven happens. Uh, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of emotional stuff around there that we won't try and unpack here for very long. But that first semester must have just just have been. It was the lowest point in my life, honestly, phrase. I I have never had, and and it it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds like the ultimate like champagne problem to go from this very heady, you know, job in the military um, to one of the best business schools in the world. Like, oh, poor Randy. But I will tell you, like, it was, it was rough for me because what happened is that, number one, you know, I was, I was literally the bottom of the curve of the first, God, I don't know, 20 or more exams that I ever took at Stanford. I mean, I was so far out of my element from a math standpoint. Right. I hadn't had math in 25 years. And even then I think I'd only taken algebra two. So, you know, my public high school experience failed me in that respect. And, and, um, I, so I was really struggling. My squadron ended up being one of the first units to, you know, do a, a, a halo insertion into Afghanistan and call fire in on, on the Taliban positions and immediately started having, friends killed in action. And, you know, that was a huge amount of guilt because I felt like I was, you know, I'd been my entire career and we did plenty of cool stuff, but not on that level. Right. It, it became a whole different ball game after nine 11. Right. 
and you know there was combat like hasn't been seen since you know World War II uh, or maybe way in Vietnam and there, you know and that was very very limited and so so it became this epic and I was outside right looking in and you know I felt a ton of guilt I felt a ton of uh, of just displaced identity you know, I was because no you leader. left. You left as the commanding officer of the of your unit. Is that right? I left as a squadron commander, which squadron is, commander. Yeah, yeah. The 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 most kind of senior tactical commander. There were there were mm -hmm. senior officers to me in the organization. For sure. But but you know, I commanded a group of you know hundred or so guys. So um, your guilt is based on being, hey, I was the guy and responsible for. I would have been drawing all this stuff up, and yeah, now and, you I've know, got and it's your who are you know not there. Yeah, and it's not rational because presumably the guys that followed me were just as good or better than I was. But right. you know, you can't help thinking, shit. If I would have been there, you know, maybe that would have gone a different way. And so it was just, it was brutal. And I, and I was at the same time, I was sucking at what I was doing. And you know? your first time dad. And I was a newborn uh, yeah. dad that was also commuting from San Francisco. I pretty much stacked the deck about as poorly as I could. You know, I was getting no sleep, driving an hour from San Francisco out to Palo Alto, you know, driving back in the, in the early evening and missing all of the brain trust that went on after hours, right? Where all the, the, the various people with their backgrounds would get together and there'd be a banker or a consultant or whatever who was a math whiz who'd teach everybody else how to succeed. Meanwhile, I was back in my den, you know, with a screaming newborn staring at a book that might as well have been in Greek and, and you know, it was it was just a really tough period where where I I had some real challenges in and mm -hmm. in, in kind of maintaining my identity. You know, who who what am I about? You know, I thought I was about this, but now, Jesus, I don't know yeah. what I'm about. You're recreating your identity. So now in that stage, you're I presume you're probably hurling at whatever moment you have into the straps to actually work out just to try yeah. and you like try and do something with all of that. You know, there's another way to put it: stress and, and and everything. So, tell me a little bit about how does how does the how does your Stanford experience help develop um, that? Like, where does it fit in the journey of the straps, the evolution of them and of you? Well, it did a couple things. I mean, I think that you know sometimes you have to step backward a step or two in order to leap forward, right? And I needed to. I needed to reground myself because being a commando does not an entrepreneur make, you know, you, you've got traits that certainly, that certainly will be helpful as an entrepreneur, but you don't have the vocabulary, you know, you, you, it's a different uh, battlefield and you don't necessarily have the skills or the weapons or the intelligence that's specific to that battlefield. And so I had to go, you know, and use Stanford as an opportunity to learn some new vocabulary um, I mean, I'd never ever open an Excel worksheet, right? So literally, I mean, when I drop in there, there are people that had lived on Excel for years, right? That were my peers. I didn't know what a cell was. Um, and so, you know, that was, a not, that was a good reset point, painful though it was. And it also was the spark of inspiration for what my, I, you know, what my company would, would potentially become because I, I was training a lot exactly as you say, to clear my head. And I had, you know, been invited to train out in the athlete center, which, you know, I think somebody took pity on me as this old commando and said, all right, you can come train with the athletes instead of having to go to the fluffy, you know, campus gym. 
And what happened was I would take my straps out, hook them up to the squat rack. Stanford's got like some pretty killer gear in their athlete training center. And yet here would be this dude. And I was pretty ripped at the time because all I did was work out, right? I mean, I, I, any chance I got, I was running or, or training on my straps. And so, you know, guys would look over these coaches, assistant coaches, be in there with their teams and they'd look over and be like, all right, well, who is the old guy who's, you know, older than, than me as, as they, mm-hmm. uh, the coach would be looking at me going, well, that guy's older than me. Cause I was 36. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they'd end up and what is he doing? I've never seen anything like that. Right. What is that thing? So then they would come over and they'd be like, dude, tell me about this. And, and almost without fail, 10 minutes later, they'd be saying like, wow, let me try it. And then they'd be asking me to make them for them for their teams. You know? And I was like, well, I can't really be sewing, you know, straps in the evening right now, but like hold that thought and let me get back to you. But after you hear that enough, right, from guys and gals who really know their craft, all of a sudden I was like, damn, I am at business school and this does seem to solve a problem that all these people are telling me, right, which was a, not actually that clear. It was just kind of an assortment of things that they needed done for their athletes that they didn't think other tools in that world-class training room did. So I had kind of formed it into like a problem that I thought I could solve, which was this unique form of core and integrated training on a tool that goes anywhere, doesn't cost much money, and any athlete could have, right, and take on the road with them. That was kind of the idea, and hence, when we first, you know, conceived the name for the company, I reckoned it would be used mostly on the road, and so decided to call it Travel Fit. And, that, and the original product was the Travel X, the Complete Portable Exerciser. <laughs> so, so now you've got your second focus group, right? You've got this. The, the first focus group was yourself and your, and your, and your uh, SEAL teammates. And now you've got these high-level athletes that are, that are validating what you think. I was talking with someone a little bit earlier, and, and, and they were talking about, hey, look, if I've got a new idea I want to take to market, the first thing I want is people to tell me why it won't work so I don't waste my time. But now you've got a bunch of people telling you why it will and people who are, who are you know, high-level users. So you've got the, the seed is planted. How, does the, how, does your, how do your classmates figure into the, the development of all this? Because that's a different user group. You've got yeah. SEALs and high-level athletes, and then you've got Stanford business guys. Right. Well, and it was interesting because the SEALs and the high-level athletes had validated this thing, right? Mm-hmm. But then the classmates and certainly after that, the prospective investors were the ones that were telling me all the reasons why this thing ain't going to work. And, you know, it was interesting. I I basically conscripted uh, anyone who would come near me at Stanford uh, into a various focus group, a project team, you know, every class my second year. I mean, I basically took the summer between my first and second year. And I said, all right, I'm going to use this summer to prototype this caveman-esque, you know, version that I have had into something that, and specifically I had the females in my class in mind, right? I was like, Mm -hmm. look, maybe the hardcore guys, you know, will, will like what I've got now, but kind of the more discerning, uh, more distant customer who's not a diehard you know, meat-eating hardhead. Mm. Will he or she think this is interesting? Well, I'll have to make it aesthetically appealing. I'll have to add, you know, 
comfortable handles, maybe adjustment, things that I had started having an intuition about already. So I used that summer to, to I probably did 100 prototypes for as my garage on this $50 freaking 50-year-old sewing machine. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, it was a dim summer internship for a Stanford Business School, you know, uh, aspirant. Um, so hold up, you're, you're, in, you're in Stanford Business School, you know, with all of, the, all of the privilege and accolades that go along with that, having come from the Navy SEALs at the highest level. And so now you're, you're bent over your, your sewing machine like, like Rapunzel. Not Rapunzel. Yes. You're like, uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're like, you're, 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 um, you're who's, spinning. spinning who's, the guy, who's the Pinocchio guy, the cobbler? Exactly. exactly. It's his name Geronimo or yeah, something, something like that. that. So you're, you're, you're there and, and how are you funding this at this stage? With credit cards, of course, you know, I had, I had fortunately, no, I mean, I, at that point, I think I still had a little bit, I probably had about 50 grand in savings, right. From my career as a seal. Um, and so I was, I was eking a little bit off of that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my wife had a job and could pay for the mortgage, right? Um, right. And food, but really not much more. There wasn't any money to invest in the business. Right. And, um, and so I had great credit, right? So I went out and it was the zero, it was the last time we were in a zero interest environment. And, and I, um, you know, I went and got a bunch of credit cards and I don't recommend this by the way, for anybody who's listening, it's, it's a high risk strategy, but it was the strategy that I had at my disposal because, right. you know, I couldn't get a loan from a bank unless I co-signed on my house. And that was the one asset I had in the world. And if this wasn't risky enough already, you know, I didn't want to add that to the pyre. Right. So, so, um, so I, I, you know, kind of did credit card roulette and lived on ramen. Uh, for for a while, and that's how I that's how I funded it. So so now you've 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 gone through a bunch of iterations. You come back to Stanford and you start to you know utilize you know your projects and and your classmates as 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 test subjects and incubators, pretty much. Yes. And so now you start to you, you graduate. You start to look to graduate. And you start to think about all right. I'm a Stanford business grad in Silicon Valley, and I've got all of these opportunities available to me. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I never claimed to be smart, Fraser. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I had lots of opportunities. I originally thought that I'd go to Stanford and I'd come out and be a tech leader, right? That's kind of what my, what my idea was. It, was. it was, you know, the tech boom was just in full swing, you know, during my last few years in the SEAL teams. Everybody was a day trader, including all my, you know, squadron mates. Everybody was, you know, trading on Schwab accounts. And so I had this idea that I was going to come out to Stanford with all the leadership experience I had, get my MBA and go become, you know, an exec at, you name it, IBM or, I mean, it was pre Google, pre Facebook, none of that existed yet. So it was IBM, HP, Intel, you know, and I, and that's where I was looking, Apple. Um, And, and then I just decided like when I was there, number one, I started missing the culture of, really missing the culture of the teams. And that was this idea of these small, flat, highly capable groups that could essentially create miracles on a shoestring, right? And, and I really, I wanted that back in my life. And so a big bureaucratic company, you know, started to seem less appealing to me because I was trying to envision, I knew I had a keen sense of like my age and that I didn't have a whole bunch of opportunities you know, I'd taken those opportunities and sure. served the 
serve the government with them. Right. So, so I'd done a couple of startups while I was a SEAL inside the machine, which had right. been kind of lit the entrepreneurial spark within me. And so I had this startup mindset. And then once I got out, I started realizing like, maybe I don't want to go be a suit. You know, that's why I left the Navy. I didn't want to be a suit. So instead I decided that I would give this thing a go. And, um, you know, I'd gotten enough feedback from my classmates. that was positive to make me think it was, it was viable. And so I graduated and, uh, you know, and decided I would, there was no time like the present. So what are your mentors telling you at this stage? Don't. <laughs> that, <laughs> honestly, that, that's what they were all telling me. And generally, you should listen to your mentors. Um, I, I had this sense, though, which I think is an important point for people who are thinking about starting businesses. You know, there is a level, and you have to make sure you're not self-delusional or, or just, like, so narcissistic that you've lost you know, the vision, because all entrepreneurs are narcissists at some level, right? You have to have like a pretty incredible self-belief and a, and, a, and a sense that, you know, you can will things to happen. Otherwise, you, you, you would never do something so foolish as do a startup. Right. And so, you know, you got to balance that a little bit, though, against like, hey, I can't be self-delusional. And, um, and I can't, you know, I can't have be so loaded with hubris that I'm going to burn me and everybody who backs me, you know, by launching something stupid. But I had a lot of feedback by that point from people who really understood training and where the, where the, where the disconnect was between my mentors and, and the validation points that I had gotten was that my mentors were not experts in fitness, right? They were, they were business guys and gals, you know, they were, They'd been from a variety of business disciplines and they were all kind of novices at fitness. And I had these experts, right, in the training world that were telling me like, dude, like this thing is special. There's something here. It does things that nothing else does. You know, and these weren't dummies. I mean, these were like coaches at Stanford that had lots of gear options. So, and, and then some of my classmates that had been, you know, pro or world-class athletes, were the ones that were like, wow, this is cool, right? This is different. Right. This is So I, I had this real battle going on in my head between my mentors, including like the guy who became the dean. You know, we had Garth on, you and I on, yeah. the, on the round table. Yeah, Garth yeah. was making jokes about it, like, you know, that I had a seatbelt with stirrups on the ends of it. Brilliant, right? And, and so, so that was kind of a – that was one of those moments where I was asking myself, like, am I delusional or is this thing really – as good as I think it, it could be. Right. So, you know, to do it. So you commit, you know, you get off, you go, and now you're like, okay, I've graduated. I've committed to this pathway. And, but you've, you've never brought a product to market before. So how do you tell me about the process of, all right, I have this idea. I have this thing. It's gone through iterations. I feel strongly about it, but now you've got to manufacture it. You've got to package it. You've got to do design around it. You've got to patent it to what, or, like what are the, tell me about the first things that you, you end up biting off as, as you go through that process. Well, fortunately, I, I was fresh off of an MBA curricula. So while it didn't do, I mean, the reason I want to write, you know, my book is because there were an awful lot of things that, that it did not prepare me for. Mm-hmm. And, no, and no MBA program does because they all prepare you to fly 
you know, to come into a mid-level management position at a large company. That's basically what they're for. And so they give you all the skills and the analytic abilities to, to succeed at that level. That ain't what bootstrapping is about, right? Bootstrapping is like, hey, uh, how, how do I get a lease? Um, anybody know anything about insurance? Uh, how do I get somebody to stitch some shit together for me, right? It's like things like that that right. I don't teach that in business school. So I had a lot of mentors um, and, you know, I've been a big believer in the power of a fully functioning network for, for a long time. Not, not a trite cheese ball network, right? Where how many names do I have in my Rolodex? Like that doesn't matter a whit. What matters is that the names in your contact list are people who will stop the bus and get out to help you lift, you know, your car up to change the wheels, right? Like that's, and so I had some very good friends that knew stuff you know, that I didn't. And, um, you know, I had, I had made a, a friend while I was at Stanford, you know, a good mutual friend of ours, Betsy Jasney, I had cold called and she was, a you know, working at one of the fitness distributors and, and, uh, and she ended up, you know, giving me not only an introduction to Todd McKendrick, who introduced me to you, but she also, you know, gave me a, a great education on the industry from the B2B side, right? From the perspective of an actual operator in the industry rather than just a member at a club. And so I just was reaching out as a long, long-winded answer to your question. I was reaching out and asking anybody who would talk to me who had a deep background in a particular area, I was on constant receive, right? And I was just trying to be this sponge that sucked knowledge out of anyone I could find who would share it with me um, to help, you know, to help. And then Don Defer, right. Who's been, you know, my best friend since I was 13 years old was, um, a incredible graphic designer and brand designer. And so I dragged him on in, in, into this with me and he really was, was enormously, um, helpful in everything brand, right. All of the, I mean, so many of the things that are TRX today, uh, came from, you know, Don's brain bouncing back and forth, arguing with me, you know, about what shade of, of what Pantone of yellow were we going to use? And, you know, what's the, what's the logo going to be and what kind of fonts are we going to use and what's the package going to look like? And so, you know, it, there were a handful of really important people early on who, who helped get this thing off the ground. Tell me about the patent process that you went through at that stage. It, you know, I really kind of bumbled my way through that. And fortunately, it worked. Um, I mean, there's a question in an early stage venture that you got to ask yourself, which, which is, hey, I have very limited resources. Where am I going to put them? And, you know, intellectual property protections are not only extremely costly to, to get. I mean, they, they, they have a term around IP. Prosecution is getting the IP, right? with the patent office or with the trademark office. And then enforcement is what you do once you have it. And both of those, the prosecution phase and the enforcement phase, especially the enforcement phase, are incredibly expensive. So, you know, I uh, fortunately decided to bite the bullet, spent about everything I had almost, you know, on, on uh, a couple of utility patents and the, the first key trademarks right? Um, 
and got those locked up and then improved them over the years. And lo and behold, you know, the, the challenge, if you don't get intellectual property protection and you have an innovative concept or product, one thing you can be sure of today is that it will be copied and it will be copied fast. So, you know, fortunately for me, I had made those decisions way back in 2003, 2004, that ultimately fast forward 10 years, uh, really became material to our story when we ended up, you know, having to enforce, um, against counterfeiters and knockoff guys. So, and we'll, I want to, we'll table that for a second and, and kind of get to it in, in sequence as we go. So now it's, it's, um, so it's what it's now. It's like 2004 ish at the, at this stage, right? You're, yeah. Probably, probably heading into late 2004 when you and I met. So, and that's when you really came to market. So what, how did you start getting, like, what was the concept of, so you're there, you've got this thing. How do you, we've talked before about the biggest challenge for any startup is the, the rise from out of the swamp of obscurity um, and to get above the mists and quagmire of that. So how do you, how do you start to address that challenge? And can you talk about that challenge specifically? Well, I mean, getting out of obscurity is critical and it is also extremely hard because uh, as an early stage venture, right, you don't have a lot of time. You are burning resources that you don't have a lot of either. So you have to move and you have to move fast. And I originally misfired. You know, I, I had viewed this tool Although I had started to use it for all my training, originally, remember the concept is it was for being on the road. And it's the old saying that like, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Well, when you're, when you see something a certain way, uh, it can lead you down a false path. And so what I had started doing is I was out trying to pitch all these little retail, specialty retail um, establishments, right? The, the busy bodies of the world and that kind of little fitness retailers. Mm-hmm. And then some of the bigger guys, the bigger guys wouldn't even talk to me, right? They were just like, yeah, no thanks. Like, come back when you've actually sold some. The small guys, they would happy to spend time with you, right? And I could always get, I could always get, I mean, a, a SEAL commando, you know, become Stanford MBA generally can get a meeting. But the problem is it's people take it out of curiosity. Oh, I never met one of those guys, you know, and then, and then I would come in and talk to guys and you'd spend a bunch of time with them. And at the end, you know, you would have told them exactly what you needed. And at the end, they'd be like, well, so how can I help you? You know, and you're like, well, I just told you, you know, you can either buy some stuff or write me a check. One of the, t- right. you know, and, and um, so I was pitching all these little retailers and I'd spend two, three hours with a guy and then he'd go, great. I'll buy two units and I need to have, you know, keystone margins, which meant 50% off retail. Well, like do the math, right? Even my math skills showed me that like, this is not going to work. And I was starting to panic, frankly, about the time that, you know, I got, I think it might've been Betsy who said to me, you know, Hey, you ought to go, you ought to go to idea. What's idea. And um, you know, it's a fitness conference down in San Diego. And so you know, it was August. I mean, I literally got that booth a week before we showed up. I mean, it was, you know, it was the, the, the worst booth out, you know, next to the men's room facing into the stalls, you know, it, it was that booth. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and we had, we had created this crazy door, which weighed about 800 pounds 
um, to, to hang the straps from, because again, I was thinking home, you know, hotel fitness. Uh, and so we went, you know, and we, meaning me, and I think I dragged, you know, maybe Ken Taylor and Don with me. Uh, you know, Ken was one of, one of my SEAL teammates who was living in San Diego that, that had retired and was trying to become an actor. And so I, you know, I grabbed him and said, Hey, come help me flog some straps. And, and then Don, you know, was, was already partnered with me on it. So he was there and, you know, there we were standing in a 10 by 10 booth with a strap hanging off each side of this fake door and people walking by scratching their head. <laughs> what the hell is that thing? And, uh, and then, you know, along, along came you right with, through our mutual, through our mutual friend. So and I remember obviously that that meeting super well. It was pivotal in my life. But um, you're at the, so you're at idea that those you know thousands of people are walking past and fitness folks and and I remember um, you know the the stack them high, watch them fly uh, ethos being uh, being hurled into the booth and all that kind of thing. Um, how many actually flew? Like how much interest were you really garnering? At well, the this event? was the funny thing is we we got there you know like the first the first. Uh, first few hours with the trade show, right? There's not that many people there. But then all of a sudden when the sessions would get out, trainers started coming through and what was really interesting and it became the inspiration for one of our other first products is that all of a sudden there'd be this pile of trainers standing there kind of with bewildered looks on their face, trying to figure out how is this thing working? Because it's funny to think back, right? Everything either had weights attached to it on a cable or were free weights or you know there was rubber right there's some stretchy component and people would like grab the straps and be like it don't stretch you know no right it don't have weights you know no how do it work and so so there was this sort of funny experience and the more experienced the trainer was kind of initially the less they got it because they were so you know, habituated to think that, well, it has to have weight. And, and so what would happen is we get flooded. You'd end up with just one strap hanging off each side and we'd be demoing as furiously as possible. And every single wave we sold, you know, a huge number of units, right? And it was like, we, we were using the, basically the old credit card on a, on a, uh, what do you call those things? Those slips that you <laughs> take a pen. Well, I don't think we, we had one of those. So, so one of us would end up with a clipboard, you know, putting the guy's credit card down, putting the thing over the top of it and with the back of a pen, you know, rubbing it through to try to get as many of these things out as possible. And at the end of the first day, we sold every unit we had, which was terrifying because it was a, back then idea was I think a three and a half day affair. So I had, you know, called back to, to my part-time office assistant, you know, Summer, uh, back in San Francisco and said, Summer, take every box we have and have overnight it down to me on, with FedEx. And so, you know, we did and got them down there. And the next day we had no product. I literally remember writing people futures, you know, they would, they would run their credit card, which I'm sure was illegal, but I didn't know it. So I'm not sure I could be prosecuted. <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd run their credit card, write them a future and hand it to them and say, come back tomorrow and pick up your product. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and that was by the end of idea 2004, we'd sold everything we had, which was one of those moments when you sort of go, huh, if you're paying attention.
I thought we were this, but that was really hard. Now all of a sudden, you know, these really smart trainers who know training are telling me this, well, maybe this is what we are. Maybe we're not a retail travel fitness product. Maybe we're actually a trainer tool. Well, and, and so <clears throat> briefly, you, know, you and I met during that, uh, in that show, you know, you take me through, uh, you know, all of the, the demo, I'm sure that it was, was what I got, but I remember spending like a couple hours with you over the course of the, at least that over the course of the week. And I went home with one and, and strung it up from my squat cage. Uh, and as, as you and I got more involved with, uh, with creating programming and stuff, I remember talking to you. Thank, I mean, really, in retrospect, thank God that that door was only used a couple more times because I don't think that my back would have withstood lifting it up. Um, <laughs> yeah, the setup remember, of that alone was a workout. <laughs> but I remember talking to you about, hey, I've got this hanging from my squat cage. You know, if, if we do something like that at some of our trade shows, people will be able to actually see it and envision it in their own environment. So as you were trying to rise, I mean, really the 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 – the process that you used to try and get to those trainers was through trade shows pretty much. I mean, that was the vehicle. Well, I mean, sometimes when you're starting a, you know, a company like you, you don't have a lot of choices, right? I didn't have the money to run TV ads, mm -hmm. thankfully, because I probably would have blown it. I mean, it's not always just a liability to be undercapitalized. Sometimes being undercapitalized forces you to, um, to be a little more deliberate and cautious in, uh -huh. in what you don't know. And I didn't know how to reach, you know, trainers. So what we figured out was, well, they congregate periodically in, in places and it's not that expensive to, to go to those places relative to television ads and other things. And so that became, you know, the prime, uh, first way to reach trainers. And then right behind that, which is when you kind of entered the scene was the idea that, well, trainers want to be masters of their craft because if they're not, then they'll lose their clients. So we need to educate them on how to use a tool that, that doesn't have a predecessor, you know, that they've already are familiar with. And so we started to think about being an education company, right. And creating a course that would allow trainers and, and others, physical therapists, chiropractors, whoever works with humans, to understand how to use this tool. So, so now you've, we're, we're off to trade shows. We're, we're, we've built education. We're trying to push that stuff out where we're, we've, we've gone through a, a rebrand. Uh, and, and that's something interesting because you talked about, hey, Misfired Startup was going to be a travel tool, went out the gate calling the company Travel Fit and the tool Travel X. But now all of a sudden your biggest traction that you've seen so far is at a fitness show. And so tell me about the, the process about you know arriving at the decision to like man we got to change the name of this company because that's not a that's not an easy thing to do no especially when you have a couple of nickels that you're rubbing together furiously to try to create heat right it it was it was terrible and it was not it was not a good thing and i i you know i talk to people a lot now about you know it's really important to think about the brand that you want to create and the name you know, and the iconography um, and the messaging before it, it exists. Because if you misfire, it's not necessarily fatal, but it sure makes life harder when you're just trying to get some momentum going on one concept and now all of a sudden you have to pivot 
and head a different direction. And, you know, we pulled it off, um, but it was difficult. There was a period of time where we were trying to go from what we had been and we had collaterals and, you know, stuff we invested precious pennies to, to, to create was now like not relevant. I can remember throwing away, you know, boxes of flyers and just being like, Oh my God, how, you know, I spent so much money on these flyers and, and there was packaging at that point that was, you know, branded under the old, uh, under the old branding. And now we had to deal with inventory and how do you clear the inventory you have and bring in new inventory. So the, the bottom line is it, it wasn't easy. You know, we, we, we pulled it off. And uh, a lot of times, you know, I've learned that if you have a message, you have to just broadcast it over and over and over and over and over and, and understand that it's going to take people a while they need to hear it four or five, six, 10 times before they start to, to absorb it and internalize it. And we just, you know, stopped being travel fit and started being TRX. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and that came from me over and over and over telling people, well, it's, it's really a total body resistance exercise system, right? And so, you know, total body T, resistance R, and then I know exercise starts with an E, but those is silent. may remember that we had this X-shaped human was our logo, right? And, and so X taking, you know, total body resistance and then pushing that, that X-man up next to it created mm-hmm. TRX. And that's, that's how we ended up where we are. So now we're rolling along and we've got, uh, we've, we've, we've got um, some traction. A little bit. Talk a little bit about. There's a lot been made of the the concept of a tipping point, um, and and you've got an interesting philosophy on or a way of looking at the idea of tipping point. Can you expand a little bit on on that? Yeah, I mean, I love the idea, and you know, I I read you know Gladwell's book at least a couple times. I my experience is a little different. I think there are a series of tipping points, right? I don't really think there's maybe for some people there is one big one. Um, most of the time there, there are a series of little ones and each one gets you a little further down the line and a little higher up the mountain. Right. And so for us, like one of the early tipping points was that trade show with trainers where suddenly it was like, bam, there's our, there's our sweet spot, right? There's our, the epicenter of our bullseye. And then, then it was figuring out, well, wait a minute, if I make them successful and if I really focus on, on partnering with them, not only will they buy from me and for all the startup folks listening to this, like time to cash flow matters a great deal because one of the things I've learned is that when you don't have very much cash, the, the clock turns really fast, right? And it just, everything is frenetic and you don't have time and you're going to die soon. And so everything is very stress inducing. You start to get a little bit of cash coming in. Well, it's still scary, but the clock starts to slow down, right? And you can start to see things a little more strategically and be a little less frenetic. And so time to cash matters. Trainers, you know, swipe their credit card, pay the cash on the barrel head, right? And, and so they were both a great first level customer. And then more importantly, they touch a couple hundred end users per year. So if, if a trainer is my client, my customer, and my partner, my brand ambassador, 
then that's a great place to start. So that was a tipping point, you know, then, uh, you know, our good mutual buddy, Todd Durkin introduced me to one of his, you know, no name athletes at the time who had just torn, you know, a quarterback in San Diego, just torn his rotator cuff, right. And had torn his labrum and in his throwing arm and was never going to be nothing. Right. And, and so Todd reached out to me and was like, Hey, I got a, I got a buddy that, that I think could actually really use, you know, your straps, I've been training him on them and his shoulders getting better. And, you know, do you think you could send a couple down that, uh, that I could give to him? I said, yeah, sure. Because Todd was, you know, was a, one of my early friends in the industry and, uh, we were both starting our businesses together and, and, uh, well, that guy ended up being, you know, Drew Brees. And so Drew then, then, you know, used our stuff to help rehab himself and ended up, even though he'd been, he'd been let go by the chargers, he got picked up by the saints and he ended up heading out to, to New Orleans and taking a bunch of our gear with him, which he asked me, you know, Hey, could you give me a bunch? I'll try to get it into the training center, in the training center of the saints. Yeah. And you know, that was another tipping point the day that, you know, drew uh, got this big piece in sports illustrated and, you know, true to form, we hooked him up with some gear and he hooked us up and made sure that the picture that he ended up getting, getting featured in sports illustrated was him hanging off our straps. Well, then that woke up all the S and C coaches, right. That read sports illustrated. So there was another tipping point, right. And so there's, there's a series of tipping points in my experience as you go along that you have to be hunting for and you have to be prospecting for, and a lot of them won't work, but, a few of them will. And when they do, they'll sort of catapult you, not to the top of the mountain, but they'll catapult you maybe to the next ridge. And, you know, and then you can see a little more clearly. And, and so that's my experience with tipping points. So now you've, we've got some a series of tipping points and we're starting to grow. We're starting to grow. What are the challenges of scale? So you, like if you start to hit some scale, there's operational challenges and actually trying to feed scale but in your experience, what are the, what were the hardest things? Um, okay. We've achieved scale. We've got these tipping points. Now what? Yeah. Well, you, your first enemy is obscurity and then you get out of it, right? You think you got it made and all of a sudden you just discover there's a whole new host of challenges and that's like the delights of entrepreneurship. Um, the biggest challenge I think in my experience uh, with starting to scale is communication because you know, when we were all in that little, armpit warehouse in Terraval, right? All of a thousand square feet housing every single thing we were doing. We had 20 people packed in there and another 20, you know, working from the cafe next door. And one of the things, it was sweaty and stinky and I'm sure, you know, violating some sort of employment laws. But the, what was great about it was it was like a team locker room, right? Like everybody was in it. And you couldn't even have a conversation in private. Like, I don't know if you remember, I moved my office out to the, to the, I had a Honda element and my office ultimately moved out to the curb, right? Because I would pull up my Honda element, pay the meter all day long. And I would sit out in my, in my element to have meetings that weren't, didn't lend themselves, you know, that needed an element of privacy because otherwise it was just, you know, a whole family packed in the living room together. And there's no such thing as a private conversation. The upside of that environment is that everybody knows what's going on and is aligned all the time. Doesn't mean everybody agrees all the time, but everybody understands what you're doing. 
when you start to then scale up and you go from 10 to 20 to 50 is, is one of these weird magic numbers in business. When, mm-hmm. when you have 50 people, the game fundamentally changes in terms of communication and alignment and maintaining solidarity under a common mission it becomes harder and harder because you get people that are, have their own ideas and they're pulling in different directions. And so that was one of the big challenges of scaling is maintaining alignment among the team. And then the other challenge is, you know, something that frankly isn't my strong suit, which is developing process, right? Hidebound bureaucratic process, which I sort of hate, but I also appreciate in that you can't grow past a certain point if you don't start to put processes in place that can be run by other people and you know a, a leadership structure in which those tasks can be delegated to those people. And the hard part is maintaining the alignment of communication in a process-based uh, growth curve. That's where things tend to break. You still have clarity at the top of the organization, but having that you know, strategy flow down through the operating system so that the people that are executing on the ground are executing on the same mission you know, in, in, the, in the appropriate ways, that's really challenging as you grow. For sure. Now, the other thing we talked about that, you know, welcome to the welcome to the floor above obscurity where now, you know, the sun is shining and the customers can see you. Um, the other people that can see you are not as desirable as customers. And we mentioned it a little bit earlier, those the, the counterfeit knockoff uh, groups, they, they now suddenly can hone in on you. Uh, can you talk about uh, some of the challenges that that uh, you and we have faced around that? Because that's been um significant one of the one of the biggest yeah it's something that i never even thought of right when i was at business school because the funny thing is the i mean knockoffs have existed for a long time right Mm -hmm. i mean counterfeits existed but in the old days when you think about what had to happen for a counterfeit or a copycat to sell it was really difficult right you i mean i'm sure a lot of people have been to you know Times Square in New York and had the guy come up to you with his trench coat on and open it up and he's got, you know, a bunch of fake watches hanging from the inside of his coat. Well, like, or they take you down into some, you know, squirrely alley and they got to show you their little, their little cardboard cutout where they have all this fake stuff. Well, that's how it used to be done. And, and that's inherently limiting, right? Yeah. People might go and buy, you know, a unit or two, but it's, it's just too hard to sell fake stuff in the old world. And, you know, retail, brick and mortar was where, was where scale sales took place. And that's shepherded by a buyer whose job is to, is to buy, you know, quality product that's going to please their customers. So, so like in the old days, counterfeiting and, and copying didn't get you really anywhere. Fast, fast forward into the internet economy. All of a sudden, you have this brave new world, the Wild West, right? It's a online shops and no oversight and, you know, e-shops everywhere. And then you have, you know, these stitch and sew 
little renegade operations over in southern China primarily who are paying attention and they start saying, you know, well, wait a minute, I can make that. So why don't I make that? I'll buy one. I'll copy it. I'll, I'll copy it exactly, which is a counterfeit, right? Which includes yeah. your trademark on it. And they, they want to sell it as if it is yours. And then, you know, later they pivoted to, oh, well, when I have, when I have, if it's a counterfeit, it gets taken down. But if I take the trademark off of it, ah, it stays up. Right. And so there was an explosion in, I think the first one I ever got brought to me was around 2010, probably 2011. It was like, I think we've got a counterfeit. And I remember laughing. So I'm like, what? Nobody's counterfeiting us. Like we could barely sell the damn straps, right? Like who the hell else wants to try to, try to, um, to copy us. But sure enough, somebody comes and sets it on my desk and it's this cheap copy of our product, right? In, in a cheap box with terrible printing. And you know, it was like, well, I'll be damned. Like, this is like Louis Vuitton, right? Because I recall with a DVD with me in it. Yeah. Well, and me on the cover, <laughs> exactly. my back on the, my back on the, on the fricking package, you know, I mean, it was really, it was, it just was incensing, right? That, that these guys would do this and, man, I had no idea what was coming because what happened was basically the entirety of the stitch and sew industry in Southern China turned its sights on TRX and just started flooding the market with counterfeit crap. And they started breaking because the, the idea for a counterfeiter is to pull as many of the cost, you know, costs out of production as possible and then sell it as close to the same price. And they make these massive margins. And they don't have to spend any money educating the market. They don't have to spend any money on QA, QC. You know, they can do small lots and sell them and then wait for more orders to come in. Um, and so, you know, it became a massive, massive problem for us that almost sunk the company by around 2014. So now you're having to, you, you talked earlier about um, when we talked about patents, we talked about the two two elements of patenting. The first one is getting them. The second one is defending them and both of them being very expensive. And I think what you're just saying a second ago about it almost sinking the company is really the, the defense of like there's, cause there's a different, we were talking about counterfeits there, but then we get to the knockoff piece, uh, which is, you know, the other thing that, that comes and, and um, as we're starting to deal with some of that and some of them are bigger players, we're trying to defend your territory, but you know, having to go after, you can only defend against so many, so many raiders. So you got to pick the biggest and baddest raider to defend against. Can you talk about that process a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to choose your battles, right? Because you can't, I mean, even the biggest companies in the world, I mean, I, I used to go over to Hong Kong and I would go to Stanley market and I would find all these counterfeited Adidas and Nike shoes. Mm -hmm. Well, if Adidas and Nike can't stop them, then how the hell is little tiny TRX going to stop them? And, and that was always, you know, one of the arguments was, oh, we should just ignore it. Problem was, a lot of that advice was coming from guys that had been in business pre-online e-commerce. Right. And, and what was becoming clear to me, probably ahead of them, was, wow, wait a minute, this, this new world is very different. If you don't defend and protect yourself, there will be no you. Because what will happen is, you know, Amazon is, um, you, you know, always everyone's favorite frenemy. 
right? On one hand, it's a great, great channel with huge volume. On the other, they have very lax controls and they don't really care who sells what there um, unless you can convince them, right, that they should care. And so what's, you know, what, what happens is it's, it's kind of incredible. You, you build some goodwill around your brand, some name recognition, some trust, some demand. And then these knockoff guys go pay Amazon to, to place their product right next to yours anytime somebody searches for your name. And so you end up with a customer who looks at a product online. It's made to look exactly like the original, except it's a half price. And so the customer goes, oh, well, you know, I was about to buy, in our case, a TRX, but, you know, maybe I can get by with this other strap, right? And a lot of trainers don't make a lot of money. So trainers were as guilty of this as anybody else initially until they figured out, holy cow, these fakes break and people fall down and get brain hemorrhages and broken arms. And like, you know, so, well, that kind of dampened some of the enthusiasm that trainers had for cheap stuff. Right. Um, but that was a process and it took a long time. And in the meantime, you know, as, a, as an early stage company, you need the revenue. You've spent all this money developing a thing, then getting out of obscurity and creating education, right? And all of that was negative. All that was underwater, right? You didn't, you weren't making any profit. You were just sinking more and more and more money into it. And you finally are depending on your sales to get you healthy. Mm-hmm. And right as those sales start coming in, that's when the bad guys want to pop up. Right. And they're smart. And so, you know, so we ended up to, to sort of in the essence of time, we ended up suing, picking a, a very material offender because you can't sue, you know, it doesn't make sense to sue somebody who's doing very little damage. So we picked a, a material offender that was based in the United States and we filed a federal patent trademark and business, bad business practices lawsuit against them. Um, and man, that talk about something that sucks the life out of you, you know, three years and two and a half million bucks we spent on that single case. And, and, you know, fortunately we won, uh, won on every count and we ended up getting a huge damage award, which didn't, none of that actually hit our bank account because they just filed bankruptcy. But what it did was it created a, first of all, it, it once and for all, validated our intellectual property, which is always one of the things that, that a infringer will try to defend is to say, oh, well, your patents and trademarks aren't valid. So federal litigation takes that and throws it out the door. That's no longer a concern. Um, and then it awarded a big damage, willful damages, which became this very big sledgehammer that, you know, going forward from that point, when somebody decides they're going to take on a brand, you know, they look at TRX and they're like, wow, look, those guys fight and they win. And, you know, they got a huge damage award on their last case. And now I'm, 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 an, I'm infringing against them. So I'm, I'm automatically, I'm doing it willfully and it just gets too risky. Right. And so, so the investments that we made in litigation were as much for the future as they were um, to try to get damages out of, you know, out of a, somebody that I knew would just, close their shop. It's nice to get past that one. Yeah. yeah. So, so now you kind of in this brave new world, we've got this, uh, these patents uh, that are done and we've defended them. How do you see fitness as we're starting to go forward? You know, we're moving now, we're shifting gears. Whole world is changing. Now we've gone through all the startup stuff and some of the early challenges and, and um, 
what's what's next? Well, I I think you know we had some really good fortune to have been on the front of the the bow wave of the last big you know new evolution in fitness, which was functional training. And we were so early to the party, in fact, that, you know, I remember hearing you, you know, talking about Gary Gray and Gray Cook and this functional movement idea and this idea of functional training. And it was very niche and very practitioner based vocabulary to the point at which I was like, huh, I wonder if I should buy that URL. And I popped on GoDaddy and searched up functionaltraining.com and lo and behold, it was available and bought it for like 13 bucks. Right. So um, that's good luck. We, we just happen to have this inherently functional tool with a genre of training that was rising. And there were many people contributing to that, but we, we were, you know, as, as much of a contributor to that as anybody. And we got to ride that wave as it, as it built. We're in another one of those places now, I believe, you know, we, we've all just been locked in for five months, right. With, with the, the pandemic. And it has come through the industry like a wrecking ball. Uh, companies that, you know, probably shouldn't have been in business, they're toast. Um, that's not a bad thing. But the ones that there are a lot of companies that were good companies that are also on the verge of extinction. And that is a bad thing, right? And, and so what those guys and gals need to do is realize, hey, we're in, a, we're in one of those moments, a, a shift, right? A fundamental shift. And... This shift is going to change fitness, I believe. It's not that, it's not that brick and mortar uh, facilities won't exist. I think they will, but it's going to be hard. You know, it's going to be hard for a while because until there's an ironclad uh, vaccine, capacity is going to be limited. And a lot of the brick and mortar establishments depend on high capacity in order to be profitable. So they're going to have to morph and they're going to have to morph into virtual um, and they're going to have to get creative about ways to extend their services beyond their walls. And I think that, you know, we leapt into this head first at the beginning of the pandemic, because fortunately for us, the consumer side of our business was going off like a rocket ship while the commercial side of our business was getting pounded. And it, it allowed us to stay in business and to do some things for the commercial fitness industry and our partners in it that we wouldn't have been able to do if we were, you know, worried about going out of business too. So we leaned into the virtual environment. You know, we, we converted our live education courses to virtual and gave them away free for four months, about 4 million bucks worth of free education to trainers. Um, we've developed, we rapidly fielded and developed a direct consumer content subscription, right? Which we've called TRX live and, and we're morphing into an on-demand service. So we've created some new ways to reach customers, uh, some new ways to extend and scale ourselves. And I think that's what people are going to have to do in the industry who want to remain viable. They're going to have to, you know, if you did live training in person, you're going to want to augment that with a virtual component to, to your training offering. And the good news about that is, it actually, it actually unlocks one of the, one of the problems that vexes trainers since training began, right? Which is how do I scale myself when I'm the engine of, of productivity? And if all I can do is six or seven hours of training a day 
and maybe I can charge if I'm really good in a really great market, a hundred bucks an hour, even if I kept all that myself, right? That still pre-tax doesn't end up to, to you know, great pile of wealth. It, you can get by, but it's, it's hard work. And, and if now imagine if you suddenly could take those seven hours and instead of having seven clients, right? You could train 700 during that time frame virtually. You might be able to charge a lot less than you were charging one-on-one and make a lot more, right? And so it's that kind of thinking that individuals and organizations are going to have to embrace as well as, you know, one of the things, honestly, phrase that I'm looking at, because I'm always trying to, trying to see, which is not easy, right? A lot of times I'm wrong, but see over the next hill or around the next corner so that we're not caught on our heels when, when that moment arrives. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is how do we grow the pie? Because, you know, there've been an awful lot of businesses and an awful lot of trainers fighting for the same small pool of people that belong to gyms and patronize trainers, right? Rough numbers. It's like 20% of the American population, a little less 2% of whom use a trainer, right? Well, all right. Instead of just piling into that highly competed gym environment, I'm interested to go like, how do we go get the 80% of the American population? And I suspect it's the same in Canada and, you know, most other, uh, most other developed countries and worse in lesser developed countries. How do we go get the 80% of the people that don't step foot in a gym that have never talked to a trainer, right? Maybe it doesn't mean they're not exercising. It means that maybe they're runners or hikers or bikers or swimmers or but how do we go and take some of the know-how that, that is best practice from the gyms and make it available to folks that, you know, may never step foot in a gym? And, and, you know, my idea that I'm exploring right now is, hey, maybe we look at this, what's been a very fragmented industry of, of bringing training to the home, right, to the neighborhood. Um, and maybe looking at a, at a, mobile, a mobile training option that... Uh, could be done in a way that's not kind of mom and pop, which is how it's been. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, but it's hard to achieve scale in that model and, you know, bring our know-how as a scale brand um, to try to create a whole bunch of new fitness customers out there that maybe we even become a bridge, right? And we walk them from their house over to, to the, the partners that we have in the industry. And if we're part of that, then, you know, we'll be fine. We'll make out along the way. And so that's kind of the, the out of the box thinking that, that I would encourage, you know, everybody who wants to make their living this industry to be, um, to be addressing. That's a awesome thing to get the, the, the wheels rolling for folks. All right. Well, before we wrap up, I've got my five and five that I want to give you. So you ready? These are relatively rapid fire. Okay. First one, what are you most excited about or focused on in your own training right now? (laughs) Getting some. Uh, <laughs> getting some training. Yes. Some training. Yeah. yeah I should stipulate that. Um, I, uh, I, I, I have, I've actually, I've, I've been doing, you know, I'm rediscovering, frankly, I took a little time off the straps because my life kind of with COVID my workday exploded. And what I really found myself doing a lot of was running down there and taking a half hour and hammering out eight K on the concept too. Right. Mm-hmm. That was just sure. kind of, that, that was like the ultimate, efficient, beastly workout and, you know, pushing a sled 
And so I've, I've actually decided I was going to go do the force training kit program, right? And I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to spend three months doing that, revisiting that old gym. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but, you know, just, just getting after it and trying to use the stay at home uh, as an opportunity to increase my workouts rather than, than uh, you know, increase my waistline. Fair enough. Who, who are you currently inspired by in terms of your reading and, and, and you know, just the other people that are in your life? Um, well... Wow. I, I mean, I get a lot of inspiration from watching my kids. You know, I really find those, those little cats to be fascinating and, and uh, they provide me a lot of motivation for, for, you know, doing what I do and working hard. Um, I, I've been reading, I've actually been reading more uh, lately because I've been trying, I, I, I'm terribly bad at that meditation uh, but I've found that that workouts are kind of like medica- meditation and reading in the morning. I've been taking a half hour. You know, I'm reading an old classic right now called Why We Buy by Paco Underhill, which looked at consumer behavior and what makes people buy things and, you know, what ha- how you talk to them. And so I've been, do- I've been, you know, trying to dust off the cobwebs from my brain and, and, and teach myself some new tricks. I just read a great book by a fellow frogman called Extreme Ownership by Jock, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's commando leadership 101, but anybody who's interested in, uh, in leading a team, I think it should be required reading. It's just so good. That was probably my latest, uh, book inspiration nice. and yeah. And, you know, and Netflix. Yeah. Well, you know, can't go wrong. Hey, so you got the whole day to yourself, no responsibilities. What do you choose to do? Well, I work out, right, for sure, because once I've worked out, I feel like somehow better about myself, right, just in, just in general. A good, crushing, hard, long, long stretch. I mean, honestly, a day like that, I probably, I probably take three and a half hours in a workout because I do this, you know, this old guy warm-up, then I turn on UFC, then I push the sled on my skill run and maybe I even do a run afterward. Then I go over and I do some deadlifts and then I get on the straps and then eventually I collapse in a satisfied heap. Right. And I stretch and I, you know, and I rock myself out. Um, then dude, I'm a tinkerer, right? As you know, like I, I am an incurable inventor and I don't, I don't know what it is in me. I just get such delight. I'm wired to think about things that either don't work the way I want them to or aren't there and I wish they were. And, and, I, and so I have like a killer, you know, um, mad scientist workshop, which you've seen in my garage that has, you know, every tool known to man that I bought off next door. Um, and I go down there and I will spend hours out in my garage coming up with the next idea for TRX or you know, hell, I'll create toys for my little dude or, you know, work on a surfboard. Like, it's just always something tinkering, but I could spend the entire day happily out with, you know, Alexa playing 70s and a drill press going and, you know, dust everywhere. And I'm very happy. Awesome. So outside of the traditional fitness training workout that you described, what's your greatest physical passion or passions? Oh, surfing. Surfing, no question. Like I, 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 I took it up in my 40s, right? I actually did my first real surf session at 
Phylax over in uh, Bondi Beach. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was over 10 years ago. And man, ever since then, I mean, I just, I got the bug bad. And so, you know, that would have been where I would go after my tinkering, right? I would head out for an afternoon surf, a, a great workout in my man cave, tinkering in the garage for, you know, a handful of hours. And then an e- afternoon, evening session on my longboard. Can you get a good night's sleep? Hit repeat. Yeah. And I, I would, I would play that on repeat every day. So last one. Is this your life's work? What's next? Well, I mean, hell, who knows, man? I, uh, you know, my, my stepdad probably scarred me when I was growing up by telling me that, you know, the highest form of life was being a renaissance man. And his definition, his definition of renaissance man was somebody who has lived at least three distinct professional lives successfully, right? And, and so, you know, I, I kind of took that to heart and, uh, you know, my first professional life, uh, if you don't count, you know, my, my time as a, as an athlete in high school and college, like was being a seal. And I took that, you know, to a height that made me quite satisfied with what I'd achieved. And then, you know, became a boots back down to the bottom of the barrel bootstrap entrepreneur. And, you know, that seemed to have worked out pretty well too. And we created something special that that's doing amazing things for the world. Uh, but you know, I think I got maybe another, another round or two in me. Maybe I'll even be, you know, maybe I'll, I don't know. Is there an accolade that goes, if you've done it four times, what are you? I, I don't know. I'll have to figure that out. But you know, I think TRX has definitely been, uh, an amazing, amazing piece of my life and the teams, you and everybody else on the teams that, that, you know, we've, we've, um, built this with, it's been incredible and it's going to keep, I hope rolling until long after I'm planted, you know, six feet under. But, um, but I think, you know, that I got a couple more tricks up my sleeve that, uh, that my, my garage tinkerings, you know, sort of inspire. And some of these ideas that we talked about, you know, on this pod, I think are going to see their day in the sun. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the TRX Procast. As a thank you, we'd like to offer you 30 days of free access to the TRX Training Club, which features hundreds of amazing workouts with some of the best trainers in the world. Get your access by the link in the episode description below.